to the extent that is the American Bar Association Business Law Section's podcast series. Our podcasts provide general information. They aren't a substitute for legal advice from a licensed professional. We offer both standalone and serial podcasts on a variety of topics and welcome your feedback and suggestions at ababusinesslaw.americanbar.org. We hope you enjoy your selection. Welcome to this week's episode of the Recent Developments in Business and Corporate Litigation podcast series. Welcome, everyone. My name is Ann Stedman, and I'm an associate at Ross Aaron Sam and Moritz in Wilmington, Delaware. My practice focuses on corporate and commercial litigation in the Delaware Court of Chancery. I'm one of the two co-editors of the ABA Recent Developments 2020 book. Thanks, Ann. And hi, everyone. My name is Alex Maturi, and I'm an associate at Paul Hastings in Chicago, Illinois, where I practice employment law. I'm the vice chair of publications for the business and corporate litigation section, and I'm the co-chair of the Chicago Bar Association's Labor and Employment Committee. Thanks, Alex. Today, we have two fantastic speakers joining us to discuss recent developments in business torts. We have business torts chapter editors, Steve Barber and Anna Stressinger. Steve Barber is a partner at Steptoe and Johnson, LLP, where he focuses on commercial and mass tort litigation. Steve also has extensive experience with business tort and consumer protection cases, class action litigation, FCPA collateral litigation, and fraudulent conveyance cases. Anna is an associate at Steptoe and Johnson, where her practice focuses on commercial litigation matters, including drafting motions, developing trial strategies, extensive research, and discovery. Prior to becoming an associate at Steptoe and Johnson, Anna was the senior appellate judicial clerk to Chief Justice Reese S. Hodge of the Supreme Court of the United States Virgin Islands. Steve and Anna both bring unique perspectives and insights in regard to the development of business torts and how the practice continues to change. So to start us off, Alex, could you take it away? Sure. Thanks, Anne. So Steve and Anna, thank you so much for joining us today. Could you both introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about your practice? Yes. So as Anne mentioned, um, I focus my practice on commercial litigation at step toe, all manners of uh, litigation, drafting motions, briefs, discovery. Um, I also do some international regulation compliance work, um, mostly focused in Latin America. And lately I've been involved in uh, several insurance matters um, in connection with uh, the coronavirus. Hi, my name is Steve Barber. I've been at Stepto for about 30 years now. I litigate uh, commercial cases primarily, uh, and I've seen pretty much uh, everything there is to see on the litigation spectrum, whether it's dispositive motions or taking cases to trial. My perspective is one from the trenches. What does a defendant have to do to avoid the economic loss doctrine? or minimize its impact? Or conversely, as a plaintiff, what does a party need to do to plead sufficiently to avoid a motion to dismiss on the doctrine and build its case to maximize its uh, recovery? Thank you both. Um, This is Anne. So I think we should start off. um, Could the two of you maybe tell us a little bit about what business torts are generally for any listeners out there who might not know? 
Yeah, so um, torts, of course, is one of the courses you take in your first year of law school, and, and mostly that is focused on uh, physical harms. You know, you learn the classic slip and fall, the banana peel, and uh, you learn that battery is not just what you put in your remote control. Um, but business torts, uh, they generally refer to harms that result um, in business or economic injury, as opposed to bodily or personal injury. Uh, frequently, um, they are related to contact disputes, which, of course, we'll get into more as this continues. Um, and they include fraudulent inducement, tortious interference with a contract, fraud in the performance of a contract, and conversion. Thanks, Anna. Steve, can you tell us a little bit about what the economic loss doctrine is and how it relates to business torts? Sure. The economic loss doctrine was designed as a common law doctrine, essentially to eliminate duplicative recovery. It's applied when the loss is purely economic, monetary loss, as opposed to uh, compensation for physical injury. And when the underlying facts uh, all uh, end up with largely the same claims for the same resulting wrong. So typically, they would involve a breach of contract case uh, and also claims for uh, fraud in the uh, performance. So let me just give you an example. Uh, it typically comes up, or I should say frequently comes up, in the product liability context. You might have a case where there's a company that supplies computer chips. And they sell the computer chips to a manufacturer that then puts the chips on an assembly line uh, and incorporates them into one of those newfangled uh, thermostats in your home. The thermostat is sold to a homeowner and allows the homeowner to uh, monitor energy usage, monitor the home environment, uh, maximize usage during non-peak times, and minimize during um, uh, peak times so that the uh, homeowner's bills are kept as low as possible. And of course, uh, there's also a uh, resulting public interest in the sense that uh, there is overall greater conservation of energy. So in that kind of a context, there might be a situation where the contract has all kinds of specifications about how the chip should be made, how it should uh, com comply with certain quality features, speed features, durability features, all laid out in the contract. Um, and then uh, it turns out that uh, the chip is defective and it doesn't allow for the uh, proper usage of this end result uh, end product thermostat. Uh, along the way, as the uh, product's being supplied, there is a, um, there's an engineer that goes over to the uh, plant and has a discussion with the plant engineers and says, uh, okay, you guys seem to have problems with your manufacturing. What's the problem? And they say, well, you know, this chip doesn't um, quite uh, fit very well into our product. Um, we're having some problems on the manufacturing line. The engineer says, hey, look, um, this chip is made exactly for this application. Um, if you uh, install it the right way, uh, it has all of the features that you need to make sure that this 
um, product uh, performs well. Um, the, the complaint, if one is brought by the supplier, uh, excuse me, the purchaser of the chip, might have a claim for breach of contract, uh, for failing to meet the specifications, it might also have a claim for fraud in the performance based on what the engineer uh, from the chip supplier told the engineers at the manufacturing facility. Courts really struggle in these kinds of situations because the underlying facts um, really boil down to a failure to provide a product that met the uh, purchaser's expectations. Uh, the representations, although they aren't literally in the contract, are subsumed by the contract. They're not extrinsic to the contract. Uh, and nonetheless, the plaintiff may assert claims for punitive damages. So they get a little bit of an economic gain kicker from the punitives. Courts will say, look, the underlying wrong here is really failure to provide a chip that met the purchaser specifications. You can't just um, attach a tort claim with the hopes of getting punitive damages when it's all really the same underlying wrong arising from the same set of facts. Courts say you're limited to your breach of contract injury in that setting. So there's kind of a concrete example of how it applies in practice. It's a way for courts really to limit duplicative recovery and get to the core of the matter and make sure that a plaintiff is not uh, recovering under tort what it really should seek just through breach of contract action. Thanks, Steve. Can you walk us through a brief history of state consumer protection statutes? Um, generally, what are they? What purpose do they serve? And what trends are you guys seeing in this area? Right. So um, the Federal Trade Commission Act uh, prohibited unfair or deceptive acts or practices uh, since 1938. But overall, um, the application was limited. Um, neither consumers nor state agencies had effective tools against fraud and abuse in the consumer marketplace. Oftentimes, you would find consumers who were defrauded, um, and they would find in the fine print uh, that the, the seller was immunized. However, in the 1970s and 80s, states started enacting um, their own consumer prote protection statutes. Right now, all 50 states, Washington, D.C., and the Virgin Islands, uh, have them. Um, and they all, all go beyond uh, the FTC Act um, by giving states authority to enforce these prohibitions and provide remedies to consumers. They vary in breadth, but uh, the basic, their basic premise is twofold. To provide an avenue for, to redress for consumers where there previously might not have been one, and they deter unfair and predatory trade practices. Um, and generally, causes of action brought under uh, the, the terms of these statutes um, are, can be easier to prove um, than their common law counterparts. Now, the effect on litigation is also twofold. It's a plaintiff's friend and a defendant's foe. And our chapter kind of goes into 
um, how that plays out. Uh, but it is something that we see plaintiffs tacking on to common law claims. Thanks, Anna. So we've talked a little bit about the economic loss doctrine, and we've talked a bit about state consumer protection statutes. I'm curious, how do these two issues intersect? Sure, well, let me, let me go back to my uh, example. I, I mentioned that there was a public interest uh, in making sure that these uh, new types of thermostats work properly because it would result in overall uh, energy conservation, which of course is in the public interest. Well, in the lawsuit that I hypothesized with a breach of contract claim and a fraud in the performance claim, the plaintiff also might add a claim for breach of the relevant state uh, consumer protection statute. Typically these statutes provide for broad relief if there's a, quote, unfair or deceptive trade practice. And like the phrase suggests, uh, it it can cover just about uh, anything under the sun. And so uh, it wouldn't be surprising at all if a Consumer Protection Act case was tacked on here. Uh, The question is, does the same rationale of reducing the uh, avenues for relief apply when there's also a Consumer Protection Act claim in the mix. The the relief sought um, will probably still be economic. That's typically what these statutes provide for, is um, some form of economic relief. Uh, But courts um, are reluctant sometimes to apply the economic loss doctrine because they say in essence, look, that doctrine's a common law doctrine. It applies to common law causes of action. But economic, but uh, con- consumer protection statutes are different. They're broad statutory measures that are uh, enacted to protect the public. And the injury is not, strictly speaking, just economic. It's to the broader public interest. And so many courts have refused to limit uh, relief in those circumstances, to not apply uh, the doctrine. Uh, I've encountered this in several cases, primarily from the defense perspective. We were national counsel for a company that had a product defect case similar to what I described to you. And the plaintiff... I thought was pretty clever uh, in trying to get around the economic loss doctrine by uh, asserting a Consumer Protection Act uh, claim. The court um, agreed with my argument that the tort claim was barred by the doctrine in light of the breach of contract claim, but um, essentially punted on the question and found a disputed issue of fact, punted on the question as to whether the doctrine should apply to the Consumer Protection Act claim. Uh, And that's significant um, also because consumer protection statutes frequently uh, uh, provide for double or triple damages. So it's, in essence, a way to get a tort-like remedy that you can't get on a common law tort claim, um, which I guess from the defense perspective, you would say uh, essentially uh, 
pleads around uh, the economic loss doctrine from the plaintiff, you would say vindicates the public interest in um, rectifying these um, fraudulent misrepresentations. Very interesting. Um, what are some of the more recent cases in this area that you think that we should know about some of the recent developments? But yeah, the general trend in recent cases, um, and this is still a developing area of law, but the trend is that recovery um, under the breach of a consumer protection statute is not limited by the economic loss doctrine. So this is good news for plaintiffs. Generally, where we see a conflict between a, this judicially created doctrine that applies to common law and uh, the legislative intent behind a statutorily created right of action in these consumer protection statutes, courts generally um, defer to the statute and the statute wins. Um, they're generally hesitant to engraft um, the doctrine onto a statute reflexively. Um, and the general reasoning um, is that statutory fraud claims are separate and distinct causes of action from the common law breach of contract claims, and therefore they are not mutually exclusive. Um, to put this another way, uh, consumer protection statutes give rise to a duty independent of the contract and therefore not by, barred by the doctrine. Um, and this is true both for pre-contractual ag- allegations, um, but also when the claim arises out of the same facts uh, or event. Um, one case that illustrates this pretty well is a case from the Eastern District of Pennsylvania, 2016 case called Landau v. Viridian. Um, this is a class action where consumers allege that an electric supply company made deceptive promises of low, stable electric, electricity rates and breached its services agreement by charging allegedly exorbitant prices for electricity. And uh, one of the claims was that this violated uh, Pennsylvania's unfair trade practices and consumer protection law. The company moved to dismiss um, for failure to state a claim and specifically argued that the statutory claim was barred by the economic loss doctrine. Um, And this is an example of the court declining to apply uh, the economic loss doctrine in a knee-jerk fashion to the statutorily created cause of action. Um, Specifically, the court explained that the legislature's goal in creating this uh, statute was to reach beyond simply compensating uh, consumers for losses, which is the focus of common law, and to deter unscrupulous business practices. Uh, so again, you see, um, you know, this twofold um, purpose of these consumer protection statutes, not only to um, remedy a wrong done to plaintiffs, but to deter the wrongs to begin with. And one example uh, that we discuss in our chapter of a very, very broad application of this concept is in the Virgin Islands. And we see that in a case called Government of the Virgin Islands versus Takata, a 2017 case. It um, involves a lot of different matters, but one, and one of them is that the Attorney General brought claims against the defendant under the Virgin Islands Consumer Protection Statute in connection with the defendant's role uh, equipping at least 7,000 vehicles in the Virgin Islands with defective airbags. 
the defendant moved to dismiss and it was denied. Um, and the court actually spoke to the broadness of the statute, um, explaining uh, that it does not require knowledge of wrongdoing on the defendant's part. Um, and it also does not require an injury or loss to the plaintiff. All that is required is an action in an action for deceptive trade practices is that the practice at issue has the tendency or effect of deceiving or misleading customers. So I think that's, that's kind of a, a very um, inclusive example of these types of statutes. Um, but the plaintiff should be aware that the general trend in the case law is that these statutes um, are not limited. The recovery under these statutes are not limited by the economic loss doctrine. Thank you, Anna. Very interesting. I, I'm curious, and this is kind of the question on a lot of people's minds across a lot of topics. Um, I know from a litigation timeline perspective, we're still very early in the COVID-19 pandemic, but I'm wondering what um, you've seen recently in terms of these issues coming up in COVID-related litigation? Well, this is interesting. I was kind of laughing about this the other day because Anna's actually knee-deep in this stuff. And, uh, of course, we wrote this chapter on economic loss and the intersection with consumer protection statutes. Lo and behold, when you look at some of these COVID cases, you have breach of contract claims, you have tort claims, and you have Consumer Protection Act claims. So I'm going to turn it over to Anna, who, who really knows the details and can give you more uh, information about that. Yes, thank you, Steve. So pretty quickly after the CARES Act was passed, we already started seeing um, some complaints being filed. And there seems to be a general um, fact pattern in a lot of them. Uh, specifically related to the Paycheck Protection Program. So the Paycheck Protection Program is set up in a way that applicants need to uh, prepare applications and submit them to lenders, generally being banks, who process the applications um, and then approve them to the SBA, and the SBA provides the funds. Within that model, agents are... Uh, supposed to be compensated for preparing um, the applications on behalf of the applicants, kind of an intermediary between the applicants and the lenders. And the CARES Act provides that lenders will be compensated from the funds that are provided to the applicants when they are approved. And lenders, with with that compensation, they are to compensate the agents that prepared the applications. What's happening is that agents are not receiving um, their their payment from the lenders. Uh, so you're, we're seeing a lot of actions from agents suing, lender, suing lenders um, under multiple theories. Um, they include breach of contract, they include conversion, and they include violation of consumer protection statutes. Basically, for violations of the consumer protection statutes, um, they're alleging that these lenders um, held themselves out as being lenders under the program and presumably doing so in a legal manner. And by not paying the agents the the amounts that they're entitled to for preparing the applications, um, they have thus violated 
these consumer protection statutes by misrepresenting um, um, misrepresenting themselves. Similarly, you see uh, claims of conversion, um, tort claims of conversion, where agents are suing lenders because presumably the lenders have received their portion of uh, compensation, but have held on to the uh, agent's portion of that compensation, um, giving rise to a conversion claim. So here we have an example of um, of both of breach of contract, tort, and consumer protection all intermingling in unresolved matters uh, that are connected to very connected to the current events uh, that we are all dealing with. Well, very interesting stuff, and not surprising that you know, new areas of law are growing and developing out of out of the ongoing price crisis. So um, I'm sure there will be a lot to write about next year as well as we get deeper into some of these cases. We'd like to thank you both so much, Steve and Anna. Some great stories and tips, and we appreciate it. It's great to have you with us today. Um, we hope that everybody will join on our next podcast as we delve into some of the other chapters from the book and hear from some other great business law practitioners. And um, we're looking forward to seeing you all next time on the next podcast. Thank you for listening to the ABA Business Law Sections podcast series, To the Extent That. The section offers a robust collection of content. To explore more about this topic or to learn about joining the section, visit ambar.org slash bizlaw. That's B-I-Z-L-A-W.